All right, so we have uh, been considering, uh, or I guess maybe should say uh, better, beginning to consider the history of uh, this period of the Maccabees. So we spent the past couple of weeks working our way through Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, which are prophecies of these events. And so today we're going to uh, begin kind of walking through the first few chapters of, of 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees, as, uh, as we said in 1 Maccabees, it's not, a, uh, it's not a sequence in the way that we think of First and Second, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and so on. One book uh, ends and the next one picks up. First uh, and Second Maccabees are telling the history of the same period. Uh, they tell the events somewhat differently, and 2 Maccabees actually kind of gives us a little bit more of the backstory in the background than uh, the book of 1 Maccabees does. And so we're going to be walking through, uh, through some of these first chapters of, of 2 Maccabees today, and then, uh, and then I've given you the text on the back side of the handout of uh, the latter part of 1 Maccabees chapter 1, which... Uh, Lord willing, assuming we, we get this far, Second uh, Maccabees 5 kind of gives us some of the same history, and you'll see it, uh, you'll see it put differently there in, in 1 Maccabees 1, and then uh, we'll seek to, uh, to try to apply some of this history uh, to ourselves at the end. And so uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago also that as a general rule, it seems that historians tend to regard 1 Maccabees as more reliable than than 2 Maccabees. Again, none of this is inspired scripture, so we don't, uh, uh, you know, we don't rely on it as historically accurate in the same way that we would rely on the, the Old Testament narratives as historically accurate. But, uh, but nevertheless, we seek to, uh, to glean what we can uh, from these books, from the history of this period, because this is, this is the best we got as far as, uh, as far as a history of this period is concerned. So I've given you there uh, in, the, in the handout kind of an outline of some of the opening uh, chapters there of, of 2 Maccabees. And the, the, uh, the beginning of 2 Maccabees it seems, a, seems a little bit uh, garbled, but I think what's going on here is it seems that, uh, seems that what you have going on in the beginning of 2 Maccabees is a couple of letters sent to uh, Jews in Egypt. The first uh, purports to be coming uh, probably about the year 124 B.C., so a good 40 years or so after uh, the Maccabean crisis uh, had happened. You have, uh, you have this letter being sent to Jews in Egypt, and then the second letter uh, that is present purports to be, anyways, a letter from, uh, from Judas Maccabeus to a Jew named Aristobulus in uh, in Egypt. So, uh, and so what seems to be the, uh, the situation is that you have uh, some Jews at the time of the Maccabees who had fled from Palestine to Egypt and had built a temple there. And what the, what the Jews in Palestine want is for the Jews of Egypt to join with them in celebrating the cleansing of the temple. That's what, uh, that's what Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication was. It was uh, this festival that was celebrated once the, once the Jews had, had retaken the temple uh, from the Greeks and had, had re-cleansed it and reinstituted uh, the sacrificial system. And so they are wanting to, their, their goal in sending these letters uh, to the Jews in Egypt is to encourage these Jews in Egypt to join with them in celebrating the cleansing of the true temple in, uh, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, as opposed to uh, this temple that the, the Jews in Egypt had, 
had erected. So let me, let me just read for you the, the text of, of this first letter. This is 2 Maccabees chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9. And so uh, this is the letter. The Jewish brothers in Jerusalem, to those in uh, the land, and those in the land of Judea, to their Jewish brothers in Egypt, greeting and good peace. May God do good to you, and may he remember his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his faithful servants. May he give to you all a heart to worship him and to do his will with a strong heart and a willing spirit. May he open your heart to his law and his commandments, and may he bring peace. May he hear your prayers and be reconciled to you, and may he not forsake you in the time of evil. We are now praying for you here. In the reign of Demetrius... In the 169th year, and uh, that is uh, in 143 BC, we wrote, uh, we Jews wrote to you in the critical distress that came upon us in those years after Jason and his company revolted from the Holy Land and the kingdom and burned the gate and shed innocent blood. We prayed to the Lord and we were heard and we offered sacrifice and grain offering. And we lit the lamps, and we set out the loaves, and now we see uh, that you keep the Feast of Booths in the month of Kislev in the 188th year, that is, the year 124 B.C. And then you have this the second letter uh, immediately after that that the follows, and again, this purportedly comes from Judas Maccabeus and uh, the, the Senate of the Jews, which would eventually morph into what we know in New Testament terms as the, as the Sanhedrin, and it's addressed to this man named Aristobulus. Aristobulus is from the family of the priests. He's a leader of the Jewish community in Alexandria in Egypt and had written a commentary on the books of Moses for one of the, one of the Ptolemies, then one of the kings there in Egypt, Ptolemy Philometer. And in this letter to Aristobulus, they described the, the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, which took place in 163 B.C., and the letter describes Antiochus dying as a result of seeking to uh, spoil or to plunder a temple in Persia. And the letter describes uh, his death in this way. It says that, that he and his men uh, went into the, the temple precincts and that there were men with stones who hurled down these stones on top of them and killed them, and then they subsequently, according to this letter, beheaded them. Now, other accounts of Antiochus' death uh, somewhat differ, including the text of 2 Maccabees chapter 9. And so you have this, this letter telling how Antiochus dies one way, and then the same book, chapter 9, uh, tells how he died in a different way. And then this letter goes on to demonstrate uh, the legitimacy of the Jerusalem temple by recounting some things which it claims as historical facts. And these things are uh, certainly not attested in the canonical history. And so what are these things? Well, the letter states that when the the Babylonian exile occurred, and so when uh, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem in 586-587 B.C., that uh, some of the pious priests took the altar that was on the fire of the altar in the temple. They took the fire and they secretly hid this fire in the hollow of a dry cistern and took care that no one else would find it. And this letter goes on to tell how after the exile, when the Jews returned to the promised land, that Nehemiah sent some of the descendants of those priests 
to, to get that fire so that they could use the same fire to rekindle uh, the fire there in the temple that they were rebuilding. And the descendants of the priests reportedly went to the place, found the fire, or excuse me, didn't find the fire, but found only uh, what is described as a thick liquid. So Nehemiah ordered that the, the liquid be, be dipped out and that it would be uh, placed on the wood and on the sacrifices. And reportedly, when, when the sun came out from behind the clouds and shone down, then a fire blazed up and the sacrifice was consumed. Again, this is not, this is not recorded in the canonical history, but that's, uh, that's what this letter to the, uh, the Jews in, uh, in Egypt purports. And, uh, and so in this letter, they, uh, uh, a prayer was offered up, apparently, as, uh, as the, uh, the fire had blazed up from the altar, and they offered up a prayer, and afterwards, Nehemiah ordered that the liquid that was left should be poured out upon stones. And so, this is the text of the letter in 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. So, he said, pour out what's left over this liquid on the stones, and they say, when this was done, a flame blazed up, but when the light from the altar shone back, it went out. When this matter became known, it was reported to the king of the Persians that in the place where the exiled priests had hidden the fire, the liquid had appeared with which Nehemiah and his associates had burned the materials of the sacrifice. The king investigated the matter and enclosed the place and made it sacred. So, so again, none of this is attested in uh, the canonical history. I'm not... Uh, Again, not a great expert on this period, but I don't know of any other attestations uh, of these things as being true. My, uh, my gut instinct tells me this is probably not the way that they rekindled the fire in the, uh, in the second temple after the exile. But nevertheless, that's, uh, that's what this letter uh, says. And then the letter continues on in the, the early part of what is Second Maccabees chapter 2. And again, it relates some things that have no canonical backing. And so it is said that, that Jeremiah, and so again, just kind of picture the time period of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was uh, was prophet. His uh, ministry began during, during the reign of Josiah and continued uh, through the, the reign of the last few kings of Judah, who were uh, three of Josiah's sons and one of his grandsons up to the, the Babylonian captivity. And then uh, Jeremiah gets uh, left there in, uh, in Palestine after the captivity and then eventually goes to, goes to Egypt with the Jews that, that flee there. But it is said that Jeremiah received this oracle that he was to hide the Ark of the Covenant, the, the tent, in other words, the, the tabernacle, and purportedly Jeremiah went up on Mount Nebo, the mountain from which Moses had looked into the Promised Land before he died, and uh, Jeremiah reportedly went and found a cave and uh, then placed the, the altar of incense, the, uh, the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant in that cave and then sealed up the entrance. And so this, is the, uh, this, this then is, is what follows. This is 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Some of those who followed him came up to mark the way but could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, The place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear as they were shown in the case of Moses. And a Solomon asked that the place should be specially consecrated. And so... Uh, 
So anyways, again, these, these events have, have no uh, canonical backing, but you can see the, the argument that, that the letter is trying to make, that, that God has a special concern for the Jerusalem temple as opposed to this temple that the Jews in Egypt had, had built. And so they're trying to, to establish the, the priority of the Jerusalem temple in order to encourage these, uh, these Jews of Egypt to, uh, to join in the, uh, in the celebration of the, the purification of the Jerusalem temple. And uh, after making a couple of other points, the, the letter concludes in uh, 2 Maccabees 2, 16 through 18, with a plea for the Jews of Egypt to join in keeping the purification. So, uh, so they, they conclude the letter like this. Since, therefore, we are about to celebrate the purification, we write to you. Will you, therefore, please keep the days? It is God who has saved all his people and has returned the inheritance to all and the kingship and the priesthood and consecration as he promised through the law. For we have hope in God that he will soon have mercy upon us and will gather us from everywhere under heaven into his holy place. For he has rescued us from great evils and has purified the place. And so... This is then the beginning of Second Maccabees. You have these these two letters to uh, to Egypt, and the first one, if it be if it be true and genuine, may uh, be from the, the the very period in which the book of Second Maccabees was written, and then this the second one that was addressed to Aristobulus would have come about forty years. Uh, before and again, both seem to be arguing the same thing that the Jews of Egypt ought to celebrate the purification of the Jerusalem temple. And then, uh, any any questions? Questions so far? Anything? All right. In uh, in two uh, verse nineteen down through the end of the chapter, you have uh, the compiler's prologue. In other words, the the author of Second Maccabees tells tells what he's doing, where he got his information from, and all of that. And he's very explicit that he is giving his readers here a condensed and secondary account of these things. He claims to be abridging a five volume work of a man named Jason of Cyrene. And uh, as far as I as far as I've been able to to see. Um, Nobody really knows about this five-volume work of, of Jason of Cyrene, and so maybe this guy just, just made this up that he's getting it from Jason of Cyrene. Maybe there was actually a five-volume work uh, by Jason of Cyrene, and he's actually abridging it. And uh, it becomes evident in this, in this prologue, as you'll hear, that uh, the author of Second Maccabees has a flair for uh, eloquence and the use of language, and this pops up at, at different points throughout the book. And so this is, this is the compiler's preface beginning in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 19. The story, of, the story of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers and the purification of the great temple and the dedication of the altar and further the wars against Antiochus Epiphanes and his son Eupator and the appearances that came from heaven to those who fought zealously on behalf of Judaism so that though few in number... They seized the whole land and pursued the barbarian hordes and recovered the temple, famous throughout the world, and freed the city and restored the laws that were about to be abolished, while the Lord, with great kindness, became gracious to them. All this, which has been set forth by Jason of Cyrene in five volumes, we shall attempt to condense into a single book." 
4, considering the flood of numerical data and the difficulty there is for those who wish to enter upon the narratives of history because of the mass of material, we have aimed to please those who wish to read, to make it easy for those who are inclined to memorize and to profit all readers. For us, who have undertaken the toil of abbreviating, it is no light matter, but calls for sweat and loss of sleep, just as it is not easy for one who prepares a banquet and seeks the benefit of others. However, to secure the gratitude of many, we will gladly endure the uncomfortable toil, leaving the responsibility for exact details to the compiler while devoting our effort to arriving at the outlines of the condensation. For, as the master builder of a new house must be concerned with the whole construction, while the one who undertakes the painting and decoration has to consider only what is suitable for its adornment, such in my judgment is the case with us. It is the duty of the original historian to occupy the ground and to discuss matters from every side and to take trouble with details. But the one who recasts the narrative should be allowed to fight for brevity of expression and to forego exhaustive treatment. At this point, therefore, let us begin our narrative without adding further to what has been already said, for it is foolish to lengthen the preface while cutting short the history itself. And so, uh, so that's, the, uh, that's the preface given by our compiler. And so he's uh, very clear that he's trying to, trying to take a bigger story, condense it down, and trying to make it uh, pleasing to his, his audience. And just as a uh, just as a side note, let me let me read for you the end of his his account, his his epilogue, and uh, I think I think this just goes to make the point of uh, of kind of what what he was attempting to do in his narrative here. He says, "So I too here will end my story. If it is well told and to the point, that is what I myself desired. If it is poorly done and mediocre, that was the best I could do." For just as it is harmful to drink wine alone, or again to drink water alone, while wine mixed with water is sweet and delicious and enhances one's enjoyment, so also the style of the story delights the ears of those who read the work. And here will be the end. And so, um, so anyways, that's, uh, that gives you, I think, a little, bit of a, a little bit of an idea of the kind of character that we're dealing with here in the, the author or compiler of, uh, of this book, kind of a, a flair for, for language, a flair for eloquence, and wanting to, wanting to make a narrative clip along and, and be interesting and engaging to those who read. And so that's, uh, that's his, his background. Now, chapter 3 marks the, the beginning of the, of the historical narrative of the Maccabean period. You have these opening letters to the Jews of Egypt, you have the compiler's preface, then chapter 3 is, is where you really get into the history of things. Now, this specific event has to do with the coming of a man named Heliodorus to Jerusalem. We touched on Heliodorus a little bit last week, if you recall, um, in connection with uh, what was prophesied in Daniel 11.20. Daniel 11.20 says, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered. The prophecy of the one who would arise is in regard to Seleucus IV, Philopater, who was the son of Antiochus III and the brother of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Seleucus IV sent an oppressor, or could also be translated an exactor, to the people of Israel, to Jerusalem, presumably what was referred to in Daniel 11.20 as the jewel of his kingdom. And that exactor was Heliodorus, and 2 Maccabees 
chapter 3 describes Heliodorus' coming to Jerusalem. It doesn't, doesn't give any direct reference back to, to Daniel 11.20, though uh, later commentators on Daniel 11.20 sometimes see this as being in reference to Heliodorus in Jerusalem. And so the, the backstory here was that there was a pious high priest in Jerusalem at the time whose name was Onius. And Onius, the high priest, had come into conflict with a certain Benjaminite named Simon concerning something about the administration of the city market in Jerusalem. And so Simon, having come into collision with the high priest, goes to see the, uh, the governor, uh, the governor of Cola Syria and Phoenicia, and this man's name was Apollonius. And 2 Maccabees chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, tells us what happened at this meeting between Simon, the Benjaminite, and the, the governor, Apollonius. So, uh, so 2 Maccabees 3, 6 through 8 says this, He, uh, that is Simon, reported to him, that is governor Apollonius, that the treasury in Jerusalem was full of untold sums of money, so that the amount of funds could not be reckoned, and that they did not belong to the account of the sacrifices, but that it was possible for them to fall under the control of the king, under the king Seleucus IV. When Apollonius met the king, he told him of the money about which he had been informed. The king chose Heliodorus, who was in charge of his affairs, and sent him with commands to effect the removal of the aforesaid money. Heliodorus at once set out on his journey, ostensibly to make an inspection tour of the cities of Colossyria and Phoenicia, but in fact, to carry out the king's purpose. And, uh, and then 2 Maccabees 9-14 through 14 tell what happened to Heliodorus once he gets to Jerusalem. And so you, see, you can see that already there's some problems, uh, problems shaping up because you have Onius, this, this high priest who's... who's reportedly a godly high priest, coming into the conflict with this man, Simon. Simon goes to the, the pagan governor and says, says hey, there's, there's lots, of, lots of money in the temple in Jerusalem, and you guys can have it for, uh, for the kingdom. And so, obviously, government's eyes is going to get big when there's, when there's money involved, right? And they said there's a lot of money there. You can come and get it. And so they send somebody to get it. Um, and the text continues, when he, Heliodorus, had arrived at Jerusalem and had been kindly welcomed by the high priest of the city, he told about the disclosure that had been made and stated why he had come. And he inquired whether this reality, uh, this was really the situation. The high priest explained that there were some deposits belonging to widows and orphans and also some money of Hyrcanus, son of Tobias, a man of prominent position, and that it told in all 400 talents of silver and 200 of gold. To such an extent, it, the impious Simon had misrepresented the facts. And he said that it was utterly impossible that wrong should be done to those people who had trusted in the holiness of the place and in the sanctity and inviolability of the temple that is honored throughout the whole world. But Heliodorus, because of the king's commands that he had said that the money must in any case be confiscated for the king's treasury. So he set a day and went in to direct the inspection of these funds. There was no little distress throughout the whole city. And so 
the idea here seems to be that you have this, this money that had been put into the temple for safekeeping. Simon says to the secular authorities, hey, the money's yours for the taking. Come get it. And Onias says, whoa, 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 hang on. Number one, there's not as much here. And number two, this has been, this has been entrusted to us, and we can't, just, we can't just give it over to you guys. This is, this is ours. This is for our people. We're safeguarding it for them. And, uh, and so you can see how this would go badly. And so Heliodorus comes to the temple, and there is uh, reportedly a manifestation of a rider on a horse bearing golden weapons, and this horse then kind of strikes at Heliodorus with his hooves, and Heliodorus falls to the ground, and they carry him out on a stretcher. And then the high priest, Onius, goes and prays for Heliodorus because he's afraid that word is going to get back to the king that there was some kind of foul play going on by the Jews in Jerusalem against Heliodorus, this exactor, this tax collector, if you will. And so let's then listen in to, to what happens afterwards. And so, uh, and so Onius, Onius prays for, for Heliodorus, and then, at least according to our compiler here, Heliodorus offered sacrifice to the Lord and made very great vows to the Savior of his life. And having bidden Onius farewell, he marched off with his forces to the king, and he bore testimony to everyone concerning the deeds of the supreme God, which he had seen with his own eyes. When the king asked Heliodorus, what sort of person would be suitable to send on another mission to Jerusalem? He replied, If you have an enemy or a plotter against your government, send him there, for you will get him back thoroughly scourged if he escapes at all, for there certainly is about the place some power of God, for he who has his dwelling in heaven watches over that place himself and brings it aid, and he strikes and destroys those who come to do it injury." This was the outcome of the episode of Heliodorus and the protection of the treasury. Now again, uh, we have this account for, for what it's worth. Who knows to, to what extent the events related in it are, are true, but uh, nevertheless, that is what is related here. Second Maccabees chapters 4 and 5 give us an account of some of the intrigues that then took place in Jerusalem between the, the coming of, of Heliodorus and then uh, the events leading right up to uh, the time at which uh, Antiochus Epiphanes kind of drops the hammer against the Jews. And so uh, you have uh, this man Simon, who had at first uh, stirred up the, the, uh, the government of the Seleucids to, to come to Jerusalem and, and take this money. Uh, this man Simon uh, shows up again, and he accuses Onius the high priest of being a plotter against uh, the pagan government. Onius recognized the seriousness of the situation in which he found himself, and so he went to the king, presumably uh, Seleucus IV, so that he could justify himself and obtain a peaceful settlement because he's got these rumors that are being started against him. And, and so at, at this point, the, uh, the text of Second Maccabees shifts over to a uh, describing a fellow named Jason, who is the brother of Onius. And so when, when Onius kind of leaves town to go to the king to, to try to, to clear his name, his, his brother Jason steps in as the high priest. And uh, when Seleucus IV dies and Antiochus IV becomes king, this man Jason is said to have obtained the priesthood by corruption, promising the king at an interview 
360 talents of silver, and from another source of revenue, 80 talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay 150 more if permission were given to establish by the king's authority a gymnasium and a body of youth for it and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens in Antioch. And then when the king uh, assented to this, and the king said, okay, yep, go ahead, you can be high priest, pay me the money, and uh, you, can do, you can do what you want. Um, Jason is uh, now the high priest. He's the brother of a godly priest, but Jason is anything but godly, and he tries to, to shift his people, the Jewish people, over to the Greek way of life. And this is how uh, 2 Maccabees 4, 11 through 17 describes what Jason uh, was, was doing. And let's see here. So I'll start, a, I'll start in verse 10. When the king assented and Jason came to office, he at once shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. He set aside the existing royal concessions to the Jews, secured through John, the father of Eupolemus, who went on mission to establish friendship and alliance with the Romans. And he destroyed the lawful ways of living and introduced new customs contrary to the law. So this is, this is Jason, the high priest, kind of rebelling against the law. For with alacrity he had founded a gymnasium right under the citadel, and he had introduced the noblest of the young men to wear the athlete's cap. There was such an extreme Hellenization and increase in the adoption of foreign ways because of the suppressing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no true high priest, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. Despising the sanctuary and neglecting the sacrifices, they hastened to take part in the unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena after the call to the discus, disdaining the honors prized by their fathers and putting the highest values on Greek forms of prestige. For this reason, heavy disaster overtook them, and those whose ways of living they admired and wished to imitate completely became their enemies and punished them. For it is no light thing to show irreverence to the divine laws, which later events will make clear. And, uh, and I think that in that you see basically a, the Old Testament pattern, right? That when, the, when the people of God became infatuated with the ways of the ungodly nations around them, and just, just think of kind of the, uh, the, cycle, the cycle of the judges, right? When the, the people of Israel worship the, the foreign gods, the people whose gods they worshipped became their overlords and their oppressors, and things did not go well with them. And uh, as Second Maccabees puts it here, uh, they uh, completely became their enemies and punished them. And God uses these, these nations with whom his people become infatuated as the punishment for his own people. And then the writer goes on to tell how Jason, uh, this high priest whom he says is no true high priest, sent men from Jerusalem to the uh, quadrennial games. And these were, uh, these were games that were being held at, at Tyre, which is up on the, uh, the Mediterranean coast. And I guess somewhat, somewhat akin to what we would think of as the, the Olympic games. And Jason sent these men carrying 300 silver drachmas and Jason intended these 300 silver drachmas to go uh, and be used as a sacrifice to the god Hercules. And so you have this, this Jewish high priest sending money for the purpose of sacrificing to a heathen god. 
And the writer tells us that the men who were carrying the money decided against using it for a sacrifice. Instead, they, they uh, donated the money for the purpose of building warships, and apparently these men are at least somewhat more devout than Jason the high priest and wanted to use the money for what we might call a secular purpose as opposed to a religious purpose, a religiously pagan purpose. And apparently putting the money toward the purpose of building these warships could count as like an entrance fee for these men to, to get into the, the quadrennial game. And so uh, that, that gives us a picture of, of this man Jason and kind of the, the intent of, of Jason to kind of swing his people over to the Greek way of things. And uh, then three years after usurping uh, the priesthood in about the year 172 B.C., the high priest Jason sent a, uh, a man named Menelaus to Antiochus to deliver some money over to Antiochus and to take care of some business. And Menelaus just happened to be the brother of, of Simon the Benjaminite. Simon, this man who had stirred up the trouble for, for Onius back in 2 Maccabees chapter 3. And just as Simon had caused trouble for Onius, so now Menelaus, the brother of Simon, goes on to cause trouble for Jason, the brother of Onius. When Menelaus meets Antiochus, he flatters him and outbids Jason for the office of high priest. It seems that uh, they're going to the, the secular authorities and just, just offering money, and the highest bidder would, uh, would win the prize of the office of high priest. And so Menelaus goes to, uh, goes to Antiochus, outbids him uh, for the office of high priest by the amount of 300 talents of silver. And Second uh, Maccabees 4.25 tells us that he... Returned, and the text tells us after receiving the king's orders, he returned, possessing no qualification for the high priesthood, but having a hot temper of a cruel tyrant and the rage of a savage wild beast. And so, this is your new high priest who has the rage of a savage beast and the temper of a cruel tyrant. And it ended up, Menelaus didn't pay the king what he had promised to pay. And so, he is summoned to the king and he puts his brother Lysimachus in charge as a, as a deputy while he's, while he's gone. And just to, to skip over some of the intricate details, Menelaus buddies up to one of Antiochus's advisors, a man named Andronicus, and he urges Andronicus to kill Onius. Onius, who was the, the original godly high priest at the start of chapter 3. And Andronicus did, in fact, kill Onius. And when news of this gets out, both Jews and Gentiles were, were grieved about this. They recognized that, that Onius is a, is a good guy and an upstanding figure, and they, they appealed to the king, to Antiochus Epiphanes, about this. And it is said that Antiochus stripped the, the murderer Andronicus of his purple garment and executed him. And so you've got, you've got these wild and ungodly intrigues going on in Jerusalem in regard to the... Uh, the office of the high priest, and got these, these Greek forms of life being introduced to the, to the detriment of, uh, of the Old Testament religious practice. And, uh, and this brings us then up to, uh, up to chapter, uh, chapter 5, the uh, situation in Jerusalem was not going well under the agency of, of Lysimachus. Lysimachus, who was uh, the brother of, of Menelaus and was kind of in charge of the priesthood while he was gone, he 
this Lysimachus had apparently robbed the temple of some of its golden vessels, and people were getting upset, and there were angry crowds, and then Lysimachus and 3,000 men unjustly attack this angry crowd, and the crowd fights back. Lysimachus's men were put to flight, and Lysimachus himself was killed. And then in 169 BC, Antiochus invaded Egypt for a second time, and there was a false rumor that was spread that Antiochus was dead. And so Jason, the brother of Onius, who had succeeded Onius as high priest, then raises a group of men and attacks Jerusalem. And 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, gives us an account of what had happened there. When a false rumor arose that Antiochus was dead, Jason took no less than a thousand men and suddenly made an assault upon the city. When the troops upon the wall had been forced back and at last the city was being taken, Menelaus took refuge in the citadel. But Jason kept relentlessly slaughtering his fellow citizens, not realizing that success gained at the cost of one's kindred is the greatest misfortune, but imagining that he was setting up trophies of victory over enemies and not over compatriots. He did not gain control of the government, however, and in the end got, not, uh, got only disgrace from his conspiracy and fled again to the country of the Ammonites. Finally, he met a miserable end. Sentenced by Eratos, the ruler of the Arabs, fleeing from city to city, pursued by all men, hated as a rebel against the laws and abhorred as an executioner of his country and fellow citizens, he was cast ashore in Egypt, and when he had driven many from their own country into exile, died in exile, having embarked to go to the Lacedaemonians in hope of finding protection because of their kinship. He who had cast out many to lie unburied had no one to mourn for him. He had no funeral of any sort and no place in the tomb of his fathers. And so this was the uh, this was Jason who had you know kind of introduced this this Greek way of life and had sent this money to to Hercules for a sacrifice and things did not end well with him. And part of the problem though that happened is that when the news of all of this all of these tumultuous events of Jerusalem get to the ears of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes takes it to mean that Judea is in revolt. And so what does the king do when he has a province that is in revolt? He goes there and deals with things. And so he comes and cracks down on Judea after his campaign in Egypt, and this seems to correspond to Daniel 11.28. And the the text of Daniel 11.28 is, Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. And he will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. And this is what happened. And so the text of Second Maccabees uh, puts it this way. When news of what had happened reached the king, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. So raging inwardly, he left Egypt and took the city by storm. And he commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to slay those who went into the houses Then there was killing of young and old, destruction of women and children, and slaughter of virgins and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were slain. 
Not content with this, Antiochus dared to enter the holiest temple in all the world, guided by Menelaus, who had become a traitor both to the laws and to his country. He took the holy vessels with his polluted hands and swept away with with profane hands the votive offerings that other kings had made to enhance the glory and honor of the place. Antiochus was elated in spirit and did not perceive that the Lord was angered for a little while because of the sins of those who had dwelt in the city, and therefore he was disregarding the holy place. But if it had not happened that they were involved in many sins, this man would have been scourged and turned back from his rash act as soon as he came forward, just as Heliodorus had been, whom King Seleucus sent to inspect the treasury. But the Lord did not choose the nation for the sake of the holy place, but the place for the sake of the nation. Therefore, the place itself shared in the misfortunes that befell the nation and afterward participated in its benefits. And what was forsaken in the wrath of the Almighty was restored again in all its glory when the great Lord was reconciled. So Antiochus carried off 1,800 talents from the temple and hurried away to Antioch, thinking in his arrogance that he could sail on the land and walk on the sea because his mind was elated. And he left governors to afflict the people at Jerusalem. Philip, by birth a Phrygian, and in character more barbarous than the man who had appointed him, at Gerizim, Andronicus, and besides these, Menelaus, who lorded it over his fellow citizens worse than the others did. In his malice toward the Jewish citizens, Antiochus sent Apollonius, the captain of the Mysians, with an army of 22,000, and commanded him to slay all the grown men and to sell the women and boys as slaves. When this man arrived in Jerusalem, he pretended to be peaceably disposed and waited until the Holy Sabbath day. Then, finding the Jews not at work, he ordered his men to parade under arms. He put to the sword all those who came out to see them, and then rushed into the city with his armed men and killed great numbers of people. But Judas Maccabeus, with about nine others, got away to the wilderness and kept himself and his companions alive in the mountains as wild animals do. They continued to live on what grew wild so that they might not share in the defilement. And these events uh, began in 169 B.C., and they they ramped up in 167 B.C. And we've given the the parallel account there on the back of the handout. This is uh, 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 1, verses 41 through 64. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow the customs strange to the land to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, and to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words, he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them, 
and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone possessing a book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was commanded, or excuse me, was condemned to death by the decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. And as I, as I hinted at last week, the, the events described here are really kind of an unprecedented crisis for, for the people of Israel. Never before had their religion come under such great pressure and such desecration on a national scale. Now, obviously, the Babylonian destruction of the temple was a, was a big deal when that occurred, but this was different. The temple was on this occasion not destroyed, but, but desecrated and given over to pagan worship and, and immorality. You could still be a faithful Jew in the Babylonian exile. Just think of, uh, think of Jeremiah's letters to the exiles, Jeremiah 29, that they were, to, uh, they were to build houses and plant vineyards and marry wives and have their children marry and keep, keep the nation going. But this was different. Under these circumstances, now you could not be a faithful Jew in Jerusalem. The powers of the government were actively forcing Jews to commit idolatry, and those who refused were being put to death. And, and thus, in these passages, we read the historical accounts of what we've seen prophetically in, in Daniel. And so why don't, we, why don't we look back there to, uh, to Daniel, and we'll try to, we'll try to be referring back to Daniel as we, as we keep going throughout, throughout the series. Let's, let's turn first to Daniel 8. And um, so in uh, Daniel 8, uh, starting verse 9, uh, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven, caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and will perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And then you have the, the explanation come uh, later in the chapter. So if you look down to, to chapter 8, verse 23, 
in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart and destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And then if you flip just a couple pages over to, to Daniel 11, you see some of the same thing in, uh, in some of the same period being, being prophesied in uh, Daniel 11, starting verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and will become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action so as to come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in their hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall, and in order to refine purge and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, we've spent a lot of time this morning covering uh, some accounts of the past with which we're not too familiar and seeing how these things are the outworking of the prophecy of Daniel. Now, what should we make of this? In other words, kind of what's, what's the cash value? What, is this, what does this mean for us? How does this apply to me? Well, if you're asking that question, I'm glad you did. And I'd like to share with you a, what I find to be a helpful section of Calvin's commentary on Daniel chapter 8, in which he showed the utility of that prophecy for the Jews of this, this Maccabean time period. And I think by extension, we can glean some helpful thoughts in regard to prophecies that are related to the church and the church age, as the church has always face challenges, and will continue to face challenges throughout its existence. So here's, here's Calvin on Daniel 8. He says, Now God shows his prophet what peculiarly concerned the welfare of his church, for it was of very great importance to warn the Jews of the calamities which were about to oppress them. There is nothing which more torments the minds of men than their becoming bewildered in false imaginations and thinking that the world is the sport of chance while they never ponder over the providence of God, nor reflect upon his judgments. Hence, with this design, God wished to teach the prophet and all the pious the nature of their future afflictions, since they would thus understand how events never happened by chance, but all these scourges proceed from God. For the same God both determines and executes his decrees, as he also predicts future events. For if nothing had been predicted, the pious would have glided gently downwards to despair in consequence of their heavy afflictions. If this had not been predicted, they would have thought themselves deceived 
by the splendid promises concerning their return. But when they perceived everything occurring according as they had been opportunely forewarned, this became no slight solace in the midst of their woes. They could then determine at once how completely it was in the power of God to relieve them from so many and such oppressive evils. With what intention then had God predicted all these things to his prophet Daniel? Clearly that the Jews might look forward to a happy result and not give way to despair under events so full of anxiety and confusion. This then was the utility of the prophecy with reference to that particular period. And so then again, back to the question, what does this have to do with us? Well, think of the prophecies of the church age. Think of like Matthew 24, Mark 13. Luke 21, 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, the the book of Revelation. There are a lot of prophecies. And obviously, Christians sometimes disagree on how the details of those prophecies are going to work out. But the one thing that we cannot fail to miss is that the church is going to have some hard times between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Jesus and the apostles told us about this beforehand. To be forewarned, is to be forearmed. And so what this means then is that we can face problems, difficulties, and distresses, things that come upon us with steadfastness and fortitude, knowing that, though from our perspective, the world looks like it's gotten out of control sometimes. Nevertheless, from God's perspective, we understand that things are actually very much under his control, that he's told us about these things beforehand, not necessarily to as great a degree and particularity as he warned these of the Maccabean period, but nevertheless, we have the broad outlines in the prophecies, and so we can trust that in the end it will all work out, and in the meantime, we just need to saddle up and stay the course. And so I'd like to, to conclude by just reading the words of Jesus from Luke 21, uh, verses 25 through, through 28, as he's telling about the, the difficulties that will come upon the earth prior to his return. He says this, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And catch verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Um, we're about out of time, but I'll, I'll take a question or two if anybody's, if anybody's got one. Um, anything? I realize it's kind of a, kind of a lot of historical data, but, but nevertheless, I hope, uh, I hope that as we're, as we're working through this, that it's not just, a, not just an exercise in history, but, but as, we, as we can see, these events were prophesied in, uh, by Daniel hundreds of years before, and um, we see their, their outworking, and we see, as, as Calvin pointed out, the, the utility of, uh, of, this, of this prophecy so that, so that they wouldn't think that the world had completely gotten out of control but could trust God. And I would say, by extension, we can do the same in our own time as we, as we look at the prophecies considering, concerning the church age and apply them to ourselves. Any, any closing comments or questions? Yeah, Sin. It is comforting that uh, um, God does 
Yeah, yeah. I think, I, yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's, that's very helpful because on the on the one hand, you know, we we look at the the, at the prophecies of hard things, and so just just kind of a, as an example of a, of a broad statement, I think of Paul's statement in Acts fourteen where he says that it's through through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. You know, on the on the one hand, that seems like a downer. Oh man, many many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. On the other hand, what what an encouragement. When, when the tribulations come, because if, if all we have is, is just the good news, and we think that, uh, and rightly so, and we, we understand that Jesus came to give us abundant life, that's true, he does, but it's not an abundant life without, uh, without difficulties and without problems, because there are plenty of tribulations that, that come to us, and the Lord has, has warned us about these, and so we can, we can be encouraged uh, knowing, that, knowing that beforehand. Yeah, thank, thanks. Any, anything else before we... Before we close, Jamie. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things that Lord willing we're gonna gonna be thinking about in the next couple of weeks because the the next couple of chapters, chapter six and seven of Second Maccabees, deal with uh, deal with martyrdoms, specific martyrdoms during that. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I think Hebrews eleven is actually looking back to these to these martyrdoms when it, when it talks about those who, who suffered death so that they could enjoy a, a better resurrection. And you have you have that kind of language going on there in Second Maccabees chapter seven, uh, especially. And uh, and then you have uh, you have Judas Maccabeus and group of others who say we're not we're not taking this. We're going we're going out to fight. And so uh, so yeah, those will, those will be some of the issues that we kind of kind of get to wade in as we as we keep on keep on going in the series. Yeah. All right. So with that, let's uh, let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we we do thank you for uh, for the prophecies of, of Daniel as he prophesied these these events which came upon your people. And Lord, we, we pray likewise that we ourselves would be strengthened by, uh, by your word, that we would uh, never seek to approach life in the world apart from knowing your word, knowing uh, the great news of the gospel and the abundant life that Christ does give us and the fact that we are more than conquerors through Christ. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what that truly means, that it sometimes means that we walk through many tribulations in this life. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us, give us understanding of your word, and help us to rightly apply your word into the days in which we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.